working on called Fight Nor Flight. And in this series, we've been examining our ideas or our, our beliefs about violence and about how we fight in light of the life and the teachings, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Last week in our sermon, Pastor Jeremy very helpfully reviewed some of where we've been and focused our attention on what we call the bottom line. The bottom line being our call to love each other, our call to love, I'm sorry, our call to love and not just our friends, not just our neighbors, but even our enemies and understanding what that means or how that works out. He also said, and I think Amy echoed that again this morning in her call, in her comments, that our, um, our goal is to become more and more like Jesus as we're changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as she rightly pointed out, that's usually a process. It takes place over a period of time as we continue to yield more and more of our lives to him. But our goal is to, is to grow into as faithful a reflection of Jesus as we can manage in this life. It's something we continue to, uh, to welcome the Holy Spirit's work to accomplish. But the idea is that we can then respond to the things that happen in our lives in a way that honors him and that honors his example and honors his call in our lives as we live out our everyday lives. So in that spirit this morning, I want to look at how Jesus talked about and used power. I want to look at how he talked about it, how he used it. I want to focus on two texts where he talks specifically about his power and how he's using it, what he's doing with it. Amy read the, the one from us, one for us, but the other is from Luke, where uh, the, both passages are from the, the Last Supper, this meal that Jesus had with his disciples on the night before he was arrested and before he was crucified the following day. So we're near the end of Jesus' uh, time with his disciples, near the end of his ministry time, and at this meal, he's summarizing for them. He's reviewing with them a number of different things that he's said to them over the years. And very curiously, in Luke, I'll, I'll read this text for you in just a moment, but kind of strangely to my ears, his disciples at that meal begin to argue with each other about which of them is the greatest. Which of them is the greatest? It seems like an odd kind of conversation and argument to me to have in this setting. I'm guessing what it, one of the things it probably almost certainly means is that they didn't realize this was the last supper they were going to have with him. I mean, Jesus knew what was coming, but clearly they were not tuned into that because I don't think they would have spent their time arguing about this if they had. But maybe you can imagine this if you've been at family gatherings, family, like maybe holiday gatherings, and people start having conversations about you know, who had the, the biggest or the best vacation or who has the more important job or maybe a lot directly, but who has the most money and who lives the most impressive life. Maybe it was that kind of argument or conversation they were having. Here's how Luke reports it in Luke chapter 22. It says, a dispute arose among them, among the disciples at the table, as to which of them was considered to be greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise over them, over the Gentiles, um, call themselves benefactors, or in the New Living, it says they call themselves the friends of the people. In other words, what I do is for your good. I'm looking out for your good. But he's saying here that the, lords, or the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. He means that they're happy to be the boss. They want to tell other people what to do. They want to force other people to do their bidding. But he says in verse 26, but you are not to be like that. You are not to be like that. When you have power, when you have authority, you, you're going to lead in a different way. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. 
For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It's not, it, it's, is it not the one who is at the table? But he says, I am among you as one who serves. That's a key phrase that I, wanna, I want to uh, ring in your ears this morning. I am among you as one who serves. I think it's a profound insight into who Jesus is, to how Jesus functions, how he works. I am among you as one who serves. In Mark's parallel account of this story, the next verse says, for the Son of Man did not come to serve, or not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I, Jesus, didn't come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. In other words, in my kingdom, Jesus is saying, the one who is greatest, I mean, I'm the greatest in in my kingdom, Jesus is saying, I think, and you understand that I am the greatest servant among you. So if you want to be great in my kingdom, you need to aspire to be the greatest servant in the kingdom, not the one who takes power and who bosses other people around and who can make other people do what you want, no. The one who is great in my kingdom, the one who's greatest is the one who serves. So Jesus is turning their ideas and our ideas, honestly, too, upside down by saying, if you want to be great like I am, you'll follow my example. I think they were tuned into the part where he's in charge, he's Lord and teacher. They're tuned into that part, but they want to overlook the part where he is also the greatest servant. Several years ago when we moved here to Lancaster County so that I could work at the Lancaster Conference office. Lancaster Conference is the network of congregations of which our congregation is a part. I first came to Lancaster County to work in the staff office there. And in doing so, I met um, the other staff and I began to work there under the, the oversight of the head bishop for our conference. The, the, um, he was head of staff at the time and still is our, our top leader, Keith Weaver. Keith has been here, but it's a little bit, been a little while, but uh, he's the, the one who gives oversight to the whole network of our, of our congregations. And at the first large gathering that I attended as a staff person, there were you know, many hundreds of people in the audience. This was an annual gathering that was over several days. And at that gathering, I was part of the support staff, but Keith was the, the top bishop. He was the key leader. So he was up front. He was hosting some of the sessions. He gave one of the main addresses that, uh, that we heard that week. Um, he was greeting people all weekend long. Um, I don't, and what's interesting to me is I don't remember a whole lot of what he said specifically that weekend, that first weekend that I was a staff person. But what I do remember clearly is that after the last session ended, and people were mostly leaving. And as the staff started to clean up the trash and we started to fold up the tables and chairs because we had rented them for the weekend, they needed to be folded up and chairs stacked and loaded back on the trucks to be returned to the rental company. What I remember is that after a busy weekend of leading the sessions, of answering lots of questions, being a focus of attention, what Keith did was he took off his sport coat, laid it aside, rolled up his sleeves, and he, he just dove in with the rest of us helped us to clean up the trash, helped us to stack chairs, helped us to uh, load up the tables on the racks. And he didn't do it in, in any way with the spirit of, hey, look, you know, are you noticing what I'm doing here? Everybody seeing this? Look what I'm doing. Um, he wasn't having anybody take his photo to put on his Instagram feed the next day to say, you know, head bishop also stacks chairs. He just did it because he was a servant leader. And he just, he was, if you know him, you know he's a very unassuming person. 
even though he carries a lot of responsibility. And I thought, I, re, I remember it clearly because I, on that day I thought, that's the kind of leader I want to be. I want to be that kind of leader. Somebody who's able to lead with purpose and clarity, who can stand in front of people and be encouraging and inspiring to them, but who is also willing to serve, to do so with the mindset of a servant and who's also willing to serve among the people and doesn't see himself as in some way set apart. And I felt like that, that was a clear example to me of exactly what Jesus is saying here. I am among you as one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. And if you want to be the greatest in my kingdom, you need to be the greatest servant of all. So then we come to a little later in that evening, the passage that Amy read for us from John 13, where it says it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and return to his father. Having loved his own in the world, I love this phrase, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. He was always watchful and serving his followers, his disciples. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas to betray Jesus. Verse three, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Some translations there say, Jesus, comma, knowing that God, the Father had put all things under his power. Greek scholars also tell us that this can be also interpreted, uh, understood, translated as Jesus, because he knew, because he knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he was coming from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, wrapped a, towel around, uh, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You've probably heard this passage. Many, many have heard this passage before. Maybe it goes by pretty quickly. But realize what's happening here. It says, because Jesus knew that all power had been given to him, I mean, he knows that he's about to be betrayed by Judas. He knows that everyone in the room is about to abandon him and in that sense, betray him as well. He's about to die a horrible death. So he knows he's been given all power. He knows what's coming. And what does he do with that power and with that knowledge? Because he knew this, he chewed them out, right? You guys, I've been talking to you for three years. You just aren't getting it. Or did he give, give, explain it all to them and give them detailed instructions and say, okay, here's what's coming. I want you to be prepared because in a few hours, you're going to be tested like you haven't been before. Or does he send them on an assignment, say, you know what? I want you to go ahead of me back to Bethany um, and then kind of get them out of the way by sending them off so that he can face this. He knows he's going to face it alone anyway. Does he amaze them with his superpowers or do something? No, no, he doesn't. There is no fear in this kind of love that Jesus has for them. And there's a clarity within him about his mission and his purpose about who he is. And so what does he do? He assumes the position of a servant. He humbles himself before these men that he knows are about to abandon him. He doesn't just talk about serving as a good idea that they should do. He's not just a teacher saying, you folks should be really good at serving. He doesn't even use it as, a, as an example, like, oh, you know how household servants wash people's feet? That's how I want you to serve. No, he, wash, he literally physically washes their feet to their utter astonishment. 
He washes their feet. And it's after he does that that he said, do you understand what I did? And I'm sure they're thinking, no, we have no idea why you just did that. Because it turns everything upside down that they're expecting. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and it's right that you do so. Because I am your teacher, I am your Lord. There's no question about who is in charge in this room, about who the leader is. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master. In other words, you are not greater than me. You as my servant, if I'm your master, you're not greater than me. If I can do this, you can do this too. I've set you an example that you should follow and you will be blessed. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So you're right to see me as your master, your teacher, you're right to address me that way, but do you understand what that really means? I'm teaching you, I'm calling you to be like I am, to be among each other as one who serves, as people who serve. In John 14, the next chapter, he says, obey my commandments to each other, obey my commandments to you, love each other the way I have loved you. And as I said earlier from Mark 10, uh, in this passage, it then goes on to say, for the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Pastor Greg Boyd writes that when God flexes his all-powerful muscle, it doesn't look like Rambo or the Terminator. It looks like Calvary. When God flexes his all-powerful muscle, it looks like Calvary. And living in Calvary-like love moment by moment in all circumstances and in relation to all people is the only calling of those of us who are, who are aligned, who aspire to be aligned with the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. Our calling is uh, to live in Calvary-like love moment by moment in all circumstances and in relation to all people. If you know the story of Jesus' crucifixion, you know that on the cross, he continued to serve the people around him. Did he not? He continued to care for the thief who was crucified with him. He cared for his mother by entrusting her to John's care. One of the things he said from the cross was, Father, forgive these men who have done this to me because they don't really know what they're doing. They don't really understand what's going on here. And God, please, Father, please forgive them. And in the end, he served them and all of us by giving his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus loves both his struggling followers and his enemies, those who do him harm, in order to redeem them. He gives his life, he lays down his life for them rather than using his power to take their lives, which he easily could have done. There's no fear in this kind of love. There's only a quiet, settled confidence in who I am in the Lord, in God's call, in the person that God has called me to be. So as followers of Jesus, as those who aspire to follow his example, we love other people. We serve them, even at great cost to ourselves, simply because that's how we line ourselves up with who God is and with who God calls us to be and how God works in the world. So that's why we choose peace over violence. That's why we choose kindness and patience instead of retaliation and revenge. 
why we choose acting in the interests of other people rather than acting only in self-interest. And we, as Jesus followers, we do this no matter how justified, how justified our violence might be or how justified retaliation or revenge might be or, or, or acting in our self-interest. That doesn't mean that we're passive in the face of evil. Sometimes this is called pacifism and people un- misunderstand that as passivity. No, it doesn't mean that we're passive. It just means that we don't retaliate with physical violence. And it doesn't also mean that we put up with abuse. It doesn't mean you put up with abuse. It just means that you don't respond to it with violence or with destroying the abuser. It means that when there's an abusive situation, we bring it to light. We talk about it honestly, what's, what's really happening. Um, we get away from the abuser, get help as we can. We interrupt what's happening but it does mean we don't respond with, with violence. And that's an example of what I've, what I've met when I've said before, um, when I ask you to evaluate your ideas through the lens of Jesus, what I mean by that is evaluate your ideas and your convictions in light of who Jesus was, in light of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. So one of my questions for you this morning as you think about this is, um, who are you serving or where are you serving in this way? Where are you serving in the way that I've given you the example from Jesus? Maybe it's with people who have betrayed you. People have um, said one thing to you and done another or they've embarrassed you in a public way or they've really hurt you. They've damaged your reputation or maybe they've said things that weren't even true. How do you respond to that? Do you respond to that? I think fairly naturally, we want to respond to that with with vengeance. We want them to experience at least as much pain, if not double the pain that we've experienced. We want to lash out and destroy that person. I think it's a fairly natural natural response. We want them to, to get what they really deserve until we realize that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, none of us gets what we really deserve. I haven't received what I really deserve either. We get far better than we deserve. And Jesus invites us to get to the place where we want that for everyone around us, including our enemies. Not that that's our first reaction, but eventually, as we sort through the the pain in our lives, the injuries that we sustain, I hope that we come to a place where we're able to extend the love and the grace of God even to our enemies and the people who hurt us in, in painful ways. All Jesus asks to do is what he did, which kind of takes our breath away, doesn't it? I mean, who can do this? Who can, who can uh, love and serve in the way he did? Honestly, none of us can do that in our own strength. It's, it's something we're able to do through the power of the Holy Spirit who works within us to work change and transformation little by little to move us to follow the example of our Lord Jesus. I'm gonna tell you an incredible and beautiful story about how some of our brothers and sisters lived this out several years ago, modeling this kind of servant's heart and a forgiving heart. On June 17, 2015, a young man named Dylan Roof, who was white, showed up at a mostly black congregation for a Bible study The congregation was Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, AME Church, in Charleston, South Carolina. Dylan Roof was 21 years old. Emmanuel AME is over 200 years old. Like our congregation, our congregation is about 220 years old. 
Emmanuel AME is 200 years old. This young man showed up. He joined in a Bible study, a midweek Bible study on an evening. There were maybe 10 or 12 people there. And he sat with them, incredibly sat with them for about 45 minutes, participating in this Bible study or at least listening. I'm not sure exactly what his engagement was. But after about 45 minutes, he pulled out a loaded gun that he had brought with him. He made some racist comments and he he started discharging his weapon. He killed nine people in that small room at the small church in an apparent attempt to start a race war between black people and white people. He was arrested that evening, appropriately arrested. He was tried, he was convicted, and has been imprisoned. The government upholding the law and uh, using its power to restrain and punish evil, appropriately as we've talked, But Dylan Roof seems to have misunderstood the kind of people he attacked that night. He didn't realize that as Jesus followers, they had a deeper allegiance to the way of Jesus and to loving their enemies than he had to hating his enemies and to trying to destroy them. What's incredible to me is that just two days after that shooting, at the bond hearing for Dylan Roof, Various family members of the people who had been killed were invited to come and speak and to speak to him that would shape the judge's decision about how to proceed. So at this bond hearing, several family members spoke up and one by one, various family members offered Dylan Roof forgiveness and said that they were praying for his soul even as they described the pain of their losses. Can you imagine just two days after he had killed their mothers, their grandmothers, their grandfathers. Nadine Collier, the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, said at the hearing, she said, I forgive you, her voice breaking with emotion. You took something very precious for me. I will never talk to my mother again. I will never ever hold her again, but I forgive you, and may God have mercy on your soul. I'm very angry, said the sister of DePayne, Middleton doctor. But one thing that DePayne always reminded our family is that we are the family that love built. We have no room for hating. So I forgive you. And I pray that God will have mercy on your soul. Anthony Thompson, I forgive you and my family forgives you, but we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Christ can change you, and he can change you no matter what happens to you. Wanda Simmons, granddaughter of Daniel Simmons, said that the pleas for Ruth's soul were proof that hate won't win. Later that same week, more than 150 pastors, black and white, gathered in Charleston to pray together. One of them said, Ruth came to the wrong place if he wanted to start a race war. I just think that's an incredible story. And I, I, I think that again, every time I review it, this is not an eye for an eye justice. This is not the, tra- the families trying to win or to overcome Dylan Roof by force. They're, I'm sure that there's an emotion in them that wants to destroy this young man for what he's taken from them. And yet there's no, there's no impulse to kill him, to you know, carry out vigilante justice and take his life. They respond to that tremendous evil with good They set aside their own self-interest for the sake of his soul, for their interest in his soul. This is what we're, an example of the power of the cross at work in our time in a very incredible, I think powerful way. 
Again, I'm just, I'm just astonished that this is, I can maybe imagine getting there after a time, maybe several weeks or several months, but just two days after the shooting, it's just amazing to me. And this is not just letting somebody have a parking space that cut in front of you. This is not just somebody, uh, you know, dealing with a stranger's anger while you're out shopping or some other inconvenience like that. This person actually killed beloved family members. And yet they're not responding with fear or with hate or with violence. They're responding with the love of Christ. I think this is kind of hits home with me because when I first came here to Mount Joy Midnight Church, we had a Bible study for older adults that was meeting on Wednesday evenings that had, you know, 12, 15 people participating that later moved to Wednesday afternoons. And the question that came to mind for me was, how would we have responded if that had happened here with our senior group, which is kind of the parallel uh, grouping to what this was in South Carolina? What if someone from a different ethnic group or a racial group or even uh, someone, a Muslim, had come among us and done this in our church building? How would we have responded to that? How would you have responded to that? I mean, it's almost unimaginable to us to think that that might happen, but I think it was also unimaginable to the folks at Emmanuel AME until it happened. I think that the answer to that question is in what Jeremy talked about last week. And that is that we are preparing ourselves by our day-to-day choices in smaller ways in responding to the hurts and the pains and the slights of our daily lives, we're preparing ourselves to respond to bigger hurts and bigger challenges and bigger pains down the road by how we are responding now. We can prepare our souls and our our hearts, our minds to respond in the love of Christ in the future by doing so today. And so uh, one of the questions that I, I hope you carry with you is, am I in the habit of forgiving the people who hurt me? Am I in the habit or am I developing the habit of settling misunderstandings, of not retaliating? Am I in the habit of not retaliating to smaller offenses now so that if there is a bigger offense in the future, I'm ready for that? That's one of the ways the Holy Spirit prepares us, transforms us, is by letting us walk through smaller challenges today that we can handle appropriately so that when we face bigger challenges down the road, we're ready for them. One of the things that happens in those moments is that we realize that there's no fear in the kind of love that Christ gives us for the people around us. We don't have to be afraid. We can be settled in who we are in Christ, grateful for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and already practicing those muscles of responding in the power and the grace and the love of Christ. Another question I want to leave with you is going back to our our scripture text this morning is, are you among the people around you as one who serves? Do the people around you, would they say of you, yes, I know him, I know her. She's among us as someone who serves. Now, that's probably not the language they would use as how we talk, but you know what I mean. Do they recognize that you're among them as someone who loves and cares for them and serves them in the way that Jesus served his followers? Are you someone who is able to continue to, to love and serve well, even when that becomes very difficult to do, or even when it's one of the last things that your natural person wants to do? Because the power of the Holy Spirit is changing you from the inside out.